In the fall of 2020, I saw an extremely handsome olive, which Matt has corrected me, is more of a sage green, like the Air Force color. That's a quote. Ralph Anorak for sale on Instagram by a seller whose name I would eventually become familiar to me. I bought it without much thought, but as we started talking, I realized that I had a ton in common with this merchant, and we have been friends ever since. The seller, of course, was Matt, and the purchase was the catalyst for this show. I wore the interact today um and today we welcome menswear writer editor at put this on creator of at rl goes hard ralph lauren fan club reluctant twitter celebrity occasional dj Derek guy <laughs> hi everyone thanks for having me yeah dude thank you for coming on i i appreciate yeah. it and uh I'm, yeah I i'm think, honored to I be think- invited hell yeah dude oh the well, honor is the honor is ours <laughs> yeah yeah i mean we you know like in the in the menswear weirdo community that we somehow have established over the past you know 10 15 years like we know that that you are someone that we wanted to talk to and we're both fans of you know your kind of breakdowns of shit. so we we're oh, just well, happy you are ready to pull it up with our bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> right so uh, we usually get started with uh you know kind of a uh don't want to call it a fit check, but just asking our, our guests what they're wearing today. So if you would like to divulge, um, to sure. Put, I put to head, whatever. I su- I suppose since we're probably talking about Ralph Lauren today, I probably should have worn something from Ralph Lauren, but I'm actually wearing, <laughs> um, a pair of uh, vintage Stand Ray painter pants and uh, a t-shirt that I bought, um, some years ago from Chamala. Um, the vintage ch- Stan Ray painter pants, I think, are better than the new ones because they're double knee. But for some reason, they took off the double knee. Uh, oh, that's assume, weird. Maybe, maybe it's a cost savings thing. I don't know. Um, but if you can, if people can locate the vintage ones, I think they're great. Um, whether you keep the because painter pants sometimes have that like it's like a loop on the on the butt essentially. So mm-hmm. you have to make right, a decision yeah. on whether or not you want to keep that. And if not, you can just snip it off. Um, but if people can't locate the stand rays uh dickies has double knee white painter pants that are like i don't know i think they're like 30 or 50 bucks you know like they're basically workwear prices and um yeah i think it's a it's a great way to mix it mix up something that you know if you're normally wearing jeans just something a little different oh absolutely i i've got a couple of pairs of like carhartt you know just the basic uh utility trouser or whatever that i've thrifted in the past i don't know six months and they like I've got two two caramel and one brown pair, and they're basically all I've been wearing for months on end now. Like yeah. just a yeah, just a solid fit, and very comfortable, practical. Yeah, yeah, very practical. Um, so we come here to talk about something in particular, and while we were coming up with the copy for the show, it was hard to come up with a way to describe Ralph Lauren's impact, not just on American clothing, but on America. So. We wanted to talk about Derek. We wanted to talk about Ralph. We also wanted to talk about Americana and preppy style and more. So thanks for tuning in. And I suppose to begin, uh, Derek, if you would tell us a little bit about your connection to the man, the myth, the legend, um, Ralph Lauren. You know, I um, many years ago, um, I, I was sitting with my friend, um, John Luca, who runs a bespoke trousering company called Pamela. And we were at a hotel in San Francisco. He was hosting trunk shows. And um, he mentioned to me, he said, uh, I recently met Ralph Lauren. I got so excited. Wow, you really met Ralph Lauren. That's incredible. 
Um, so he pulled out his phone and he showed me this photo. He, he went to like some car show and Ralph Lauren was there. And they, um, I thought that was just, I mean, to me, Ralph is like, he's the man. He's he's like the, the number one dude in menswear. And um, I thought what was really interesting to me is that Gianluca, who um, grew up in Naples, now lives in Milan. Um, he said that when he first visited a Ralph Lauren store, it felt like you were walking through the personal home and wardrobe of like the coolest guy you could possibly. And <laughs> I felt the same exact way. It was, I thought it was so weird that someone on the other side of the country would have walked through a Ralph Lauren flagship and had the same exact impression. And the, and the guy essentially in my mind is like JFK jr. It's like a sporty preppy, um, but not like, not like in a vine, you know, Vineyard vines kind of like, like, uptight way he's just kind of like a cool cool dude like a playboy um, yeah like, like a playboy, playboy right like a, playboy. a millionaire playboy sort like a of millionaire character. playboy and um and yeah that was my impression when i first walked through a ralph Lauren flagship but i i think my first like real exposure to him is that um in the 90s i was really into music and dance and whatnot and all the guys that i knew that were really into dance not not everybody but at the time everyone wore like Nautica and Tommy Hilfiger um, and a lot of Polo Ralph Lauren and um, Polo was the most dominant kind of you know it, it just took up tier you know spots one through ten and everyone else was below that and um, it was just the coolest guys wear Polo um, to me it was a mix of walking into a Ralph Lauren flagship and feeling that sense of like aspiration um, whereas I you know, when I walked by at the time when in the nineties, I, I, I would I might pass by Brooks Brothers and I would recognize it as like that's basically where just to be blunt about it, where wealthy white people shop. I'm Asian, so you know, I, I would recognize it as like, oh, that's yeah. where wealthy white people shop. But it wasn't necessarily like if I walked by Brooks Brothers, I wouldn't be like, Oh, I I I aspire to wear that. It would just be like, Yeah, that's where wealthy white people shop. Whereas Ralph Warren, I had that image of wealthy whiteness, but there was a lot of aspiration in me anyway. And and part of that was the context of how Ralph Lauren presented their clothing and then on the street, how people remix the clothing and what clothing meant to the cultural scene that I was in. Um, the cool guys wore polo. Um, they wore it in a kind of, like I didn't even think of clothes in terms of like streetwear or prep. I just thought of it as, um, I, you know, those terms weren't even in my head. You just you just knew what were the right Ralph Lauren pieces. Um, you knew what they were supposed to look like and you knew what the look was because there was a look to the dancing. And yeah, to me, that stuff was just the coolest. Um, just out of curiosity, yeah. what, what was the look of the dancing? That, like what, you know, Ralph encompasses so many different types of vibes and styles and, and what have you. But like, what were those kids wearing? So in the early 90s, uh, in, the, in the late 80s, breakdancing had this like, just got super commercial. Right. Um, I mean, there were like, there were like home instructional VHS tapes that you could pop in and learn how to pop and lock and all this stuff. <laughs> so by the early, by the early 90s, I mean, there were like coloring books on how to like breakdance and all, all sorts of stuff. So by the early <laughs> right, 90s, right. a lot of guys just felt it was whack, essentially. I, I don't want to... I don't want to overemphasize that because there were still people that were into breaking and like that was a legitimate scene. And I think, you know, I, I think dancing cool in all forms. So it's not that I necessarily look down on it, but at the clubs that I would go to, you could not break dance. If you did, I mean, you just get clowned. 
Um, so, <laughs> so in the early '90s, um, the the start early '90s to mid to mid '90s, there was like a wave that started in New York called freestyle dancing. And if people go to YouTube, um, they can look up this video called uh, Mop Tops M O P T O P S, and then Wreck and Shop um, W R E K I N and then Shop. In the early mm-hmm. '90s, that was a, a documentary that um, PBS produced, and they filmed this dance crew called the Mop Tops. And the Mop Tops were doing like a different kind of dance, I guess. And this was like happening in Latin quarters. I mean, it wasn't just the Mop Tops; it was like a bunch of different crews. But um, but the Mop Tops became the face for a lot of guys outside of New York because this PBS t- tape would get passed around. Um, so in the early '90s, you know, before like the internet, you would you know, like stuff would just get passed around, like cassette tapes and VHS tapes, like skate videotapes. Um, oh, get totally. Passed around as like, a, as like a dub of a dub of a dub of a dub. And as you know, as when you do more dubs, the, the, the quality of the recording degrades. Mm-hmm. So by the time this tape reaches California, I mean, a bunch of my friends and I were watching like this really scratchy tape, but it was to me like dopest shit I've ever seen. And um, yeah, I don't know yeah. <laughs> how to describe it other than it was was not breaking. It was its own kind of dance form that incorporated all of the um, traditions, I suppose. And um, you would go to these clubs, it'd be like these moving venues, um, and people would really only go for the dancers. In fact, if like someone performed that night, it could even be like a big name. It could be like RZA or Most Def or whatever. A lot of guys would get mm-hmm. disappointed because they came to see the dancer. Um, and the guys in that were dancing would wear um, like the P-Wing collection um, yeah. from Ralph Lauren. Um, you know, uh, these like USA sweatshirts, um, a lot of block coloring. They'd wear mm-hmm. um, these like, oftentimes a lot of these garments would have really large prints like people climbing, uh, people cycling, uh, sailing motifs. And I think the only unifying kind of um, design element were these kind of like big blocky. So although Ralph Lauren's a preppy brand, I wouldn't necessarily, like today we wouldn't necessarily call the garments preppy. Uh, There were sportswear, um, but they were just, it just became a thing. Like, you know, like the P-Wing collection became a thing. The, The Right the you know the usa sweatshirts became a thing and you just knew what to get the indian head sweater was like a huge thing um yeah i mean people went nuts over the the indian head sweaters yeah so that's that's what people wore and that was my introduction to it and and really when i got more into ralph lauren to me that was like that's how i learned about um that's how i started thinking about like tweed jackets or chambray shirts or oxford cloth button and over time um i would end up realizing oh the oxford cloth button down came from brooks brothers and you know the chambray shirt was originally a u.s military garment or like tweed jackets oh there are these tailors in london who do bespoke version and i would just eventually branch out to quite honestly like the original um and you know most of my ralph Lauren purchases now are like limited to double rl but i still i mean i still see the blue line kind of polo label stuff and think it's fantastic oh totally and, you know, he, Ralph basically took all of the various elements of American style and put them in, into one fucking place. Like, you know, he yeah. he basically, I feel like, took the model that had been set by these, like, 
you know, mercantile stores, Sears, JCPenney, etc. And while they were declining, he he elevated that that model in a, in a weird way. Like everything, you know, everything he made uh, across the various lines had harkened back to that that thing. Even like the, you know, as you said, the the wild color box stuff that that was sportswear. So you know, like what is what does it mean that that he almost defined Americana in in just such a solid way, but but what does Americana actually mean in in terms of, of what he was seeing? So I, I think of this in, in a couple of ways. One is that um, to me, if, if we're talking about like um, like Americana as, as you know, like what is what is Americana? To me, that look was defined by Brooks Brothers starting in the mid-19th century and certainly around the early 20th century. So Brooks Brothers started manufacturing ready-to-wear suits in the mid-19th century. By the early 20th century, they introduced stuff like, you know, um, Oxford cloth. Or No, the original button-downs were not made for cloth, but they they introduced the button-down collar. They introduced, um, you know, Shetland Shetland sweaters and, you know, polo coats eventually and all the stuff. And that, to me, is like the classic American look. And then on the other side, you had... um, you know, L.L. Bean, Abercrombie & Fitch doing the kind of sportswear version. Um, so all of these clothiers, they defined, they gave, they gave for American men's clothing, uh, they gave us like the ABCs, the language of, you know, how to create. But Ralph Lauren, a lot of that stuff starting in the early 20th century and moving forward into like the 80s, a lot of stuff started to decline. Like it just was not cool. It, it, it fell by the wayside compared to Armani and Versace and these kind of essentially more aspirational, cooler brands. And Ralph Lauren, to me, took that language and he made it more romantic. And I kind of think of it as the difference between a documentary and a movie. And sometimes mm. when you're watching a movie, you know, the historian's going to point out, well, that's not how something really happened. And, you know, like that's this detail incorrect. But the movie adds a luster to the story. It makes it it gives it gives you emotion right it's not purely just reading the facts as as it happened it puts it into a storyline it makes it aspirational and that to me is what um, ralph lauren did for a lot of american clothing is that he made he took all of that language from ll bean abercrombie and, and fitch and brooks brothers j press he has not really invented any any real garments he took all of these designs and he made it gave it a story and the other thing i think of is what do we what are we talking about when we think of Americana is that I think of um, someone from um, NPR uh, recently interviewed me about Ralph Lauren. And it came to me when I was speaking to him that, um, you know, a lot of people look at Ralph Lauren and Brooks Brothers and Jay Press and all these, L.O. Bean certainly, um, and think of them as essentially like white people. And <laughs> right. it's true right. that um, to the degree, these are essentially white people clothes to the degree that America is essentially a white country in the sense mm-hmm. I, I say that in the sense that white whiteness has like a primacy in American culture um, and Ralph supremacy Lauren, you could say yeah I mean you know it, it's, it's the dominant culture we'll say yes yes and um, and Ralph Lauren's clothes reflect a bit of that because it's American clothing so therefore it reflects a lot of whiteness but America is also much more than just whiteness Right, it's, it's contrib- the story of many different types of immigrants for different shores. The story of Black Americans. Uh, all types of people have lived here and contributed to that story. So even though whiteness has a primacy or, or dominance or hegemony in our culture, 
America is also much more than, and that's how I think of Ralph Lauren. I think of Ralph Lauren as the quintessential American brand in that, yes, it does kind of reflect to this almost um, mythical or mythologized or romanticized view of this like white homesteader and, um, you know, kind of this kind of aristocracy, American aristocracy. Um, But as the clothes have been remixed and worn and have reflected different groups of people, it's also much more than that. We think of like the low heads, the 90s, which is my first encounter with the look. That is not, Mm -hmm. it's not to say that a white person can't wear clothes in that sense, but the culture as it was represented at the time, white. um, I think of the many, many different immigrants who have adopted Ralph Lauren, aspire to Ralph Lauren, and they also wear it in, you know, like when they put it on their body, the, the meaning changes. It's like a different thing. So a lot of Asian immigrants wear Ralph Lauren. Um, and you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that they're aspiring to be white. They, they do recognize that it's, you know, again, whiteness has like a primacy and certain kind of aspir- aspirational, white, white culture has a certain kind of aspirational dominance in, in our culture. But I wouldn't say that the people wearing those clothes are trying to be um, and that's one of the great things I think of when I think of Ralph Lauren is that it reflects um, a bit of that that kind of white hegemony in, in our culture, which is unavoidable given that America is white. Um, but it also reflects so much more in the sense that it reflects other parts of American culture, that America is not made up of many, many people and stories. Um, and I think that they do that better than, frankly, L.L. Bean and um, Brooks Brothers, Abercrombie and Fitch. Um, yeah. Partly because, and I don't think it's of necessarily of their doing. I think that's just because people on the ground um, are serve as kingmakers, and they they decide, they create them, um, and they just happen to. Mm. Yeah, that, the low head thing is super interesting um, because, in a way, it's a very subversive type of shit, especially with the you know the storied like thefts and things. Um, yeah, uh, with Ralph Lauren, but. It's like, yo, I'm going to take this thing that is hyper expensive and it's going to elevate me because it looks hyper expensive. But, you know, then this this huge movement and cult grew out of that. And and honestly, one of my favorite like one of my favorite things about just fashion of the past 50 years in general, like the lowheads are just such a cool uh, movement of people that are that that love Ralph and just love to rock shit in in crazy ways yeah and you know i have friends that have been wearing that look for since since i knew them in the early 90s they oh, haven't hell. like they haven't changed at all hell and, yeah. and it's been stylish it's been stylish the whole time you know that's the totally, thing is that totally. it's, it's rooted it's rooted in a classic language um and it's been made its own thing and it's connected to an actual uh in my view an actual street culture and that street culture retains cultural capital. So therefore the look constantly becomes, it just, it's just forever cool. It's sort of like how, you know, the punk look is forever cool. Um, yeah. One of the things that I, I get bummed about when I think of like modern streetwear is so much of it is not rooted to a culture outside of clothing. Um, it's not rooted to like something else, like a dance scene or a music scene or whatever. It's just 
it's just about the internet, you know, whatever like fashion guys on the internet are into. And that's when stuff becomes really fleeting because as soon as the thing on the internet passes, you know, a year later, it's over. Um, whereas the great thing about the Ralph Lauren look is that you can genuinely build like a wardrobe and just wear that forever. Um, it's just so, to me, it has, it has always looked cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the subcultural elements of it too, just, feed into what I personally think is, you know, what sets apart someone that, that likes clothing from a, from an outsider's perspective to someone that has like a basis, you know, whether it be punk or hip hop or dance or whatever the fuck, like there's, there's so much of that. And like, you can tie a lot of the, like a lot of the Ralph Lauren love to these various elements of things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the great thing for for me, I've, I've been thinking about <clears throat> Ralph Lauren a, a lot lately because I've been thinking about how um, I'm always thinking about how you got to get more guys into clothing um, right. because of all whatever niche that you're in, if whether you're into like whatever, you could be into like really basic kind of like preppy clothing or you could be into like Capital or Rick Owens. Um, but the whole system depends on new people getting into the stuff, contributing to the conversation, frankly, buying stuff so that it supports makers. Um, and I, when I was young, Ralph Lauren was like a really easy way into that because the concepts are accessible. Like you could, like you, even on the periphery, just even if you, if you, if you didn't have any interest in, in clothing, you would understand the language of like tweed jackets and Western shirts and all this stuff just from like watching movies. And nowadays, a lot of menswear is so niche. And the conversations are so fragmented. There's no, there's no longer any kind of like dominant narrative, and the clothing prices are skyrocketing. I think it's so yeah, difficult it's for the average guy to get into stuff because they might look at, you know, a, what guys that are into clothing are talking about, and it's so the conversations are so niche and insular. They're talking about like thousand dollar jackets, you know, five hundred dollar sweaters, three hundred dollar sneakers. And the designs are so kind of conceptual, like you're not going to get a guy off the street all of a sudden like into capital. So there has to be some kind of like entry point. And I just often think of like, what is, because I don't, I don't think that young people are attracted to Ralph Lauren the way that when I was young, a lot of guys were attracted to her. So I often think right, of like, right. what is that like entry point, you know, because I don't think that there is that entry. Yeah, it's very true. Um, you know, it, it, it just becomes it becomes something that that normal people can't can't process. I think in a weird way, but all, all of the things that that you know internet nerds love are are cool. Like if you like that, I'm not not going to knock you. But you know, there's a there's a, a like you said a lack of like entry point, and I feel like it's only gotten worse in the past few years. Even though you know, even though there's there's so many more places to go now, you know. And J. Crew is everywhere. Uh, there, there are these different, you know, different companies that we may not personally love, but they they're everywhere. But also, how do you get a person to start caring about about that when you're like, I don't know. I, I feel like there's no middle ground anymore. It's just either weird capital it's stuff whole... or it's mall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're super basic. Well, it's and... the yeah. it's the the problem between. Uh, I guess production costs and like what people will pay, right? You say you more or less, you want cool stuff. You have to pay for it. And of course there are ways to make things inexpensively. And that is not the solution. Although it seems to be 
Um, right. I mean, if we're talking about an entry point for people, it would have to be below a certain threshold. Um, yeah. And then as you go lower and lower and lower, you're complicating things more and more. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, um, even this, the remaining small tier of middle priced goods, like I don't think Gitman Brothers shirts have changed much from the early 2000s in terms of price. Um, but, you know, mm -hmm. it's very difficult to get guys to buy even men's shirt. Yeah. And, you know, again, the great thing about Ralph Lauren is just it was just a it was a way to get a lot of guys to clothing. Um, it gave them a kind of like easy entry point. And then from there, some stayed with a very kind of like, you know, like a basic kind of preppier classic look. And some guys moved to very conceptual lines. And I think that's kind of the wonderful thing of having multiple, you get people into something, they can eventually develop their own taste. And, and then they sort of become like uh, representatives for the brand, right? <laughs> like yeah. the, the 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 better their styling is people are like oh my god what is this person wearing oh it's ralph of course yeah yeah there was a moment where ralph did that collab with palace that i thought was really cool and it may have been um and they started doing you know they started doing a bunch of re-releases um i can't remember the kind of like famous 90s collections that they re-released oh um, yeah they did the snow was... beach and some other uh yeah. some other like similar polo sports stuff yeah and they and they've done a few uh polo country re-releases yeah um i bought their polo sportsman sweater um, oh the the fishing one yeah yeah that i love that that thing. is one of my all-time favorite ralph pieces and I, I i don't really wear sweaters so i don't need to own it but it's one of those things that i've always just wanted to like, <laughs> come across at a yard sale you know like yeah. oh this this is five dollars great i i will never yeah. wear this but i just want it yeah no i love that sweater we, um, we could do a whole fucking episode on polo uh, country and polo sports. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought that them releasing that, I, I can't remember what years they were doing that, um, but it was like maybe like four or five years. And I thought that may could have like stirred, you know, the kind of discourse, but it didn't really make that big of a wave among like the broader. But I thought a lot of those re-releases were super cool. Last, last oh, um, season, they did a bunch of, other really cool sweaters um have you guys heard of the rig rooms that they do uh i, I don't not. know that i have so um ralph lauren is somewhat unique in that you know if you work at another brand and you're designing a collection it's very common to do a mood board and you know i'm sure mm -hmm. your listeners are all very familiar mood board is just like you put a bunch of like photos together and say like this is you know like the inspiration for our collection ralph lauren does what they call rig room which is a room that they rig with like, it's not just like a mood board. It's a whole room full of like items from the era, the mannequins with, you know, the oh, vintage wow. garments. It's like, so they, they do the whole room and all the designers go into the room and they like immerse themselves in the idea of what the coming collection should be. Um, so it's like a full 3D kind of like environment. And, like a um, method acting. Yeah. It's like, yeah. And I, and I just think those are so neat. Um, Antonio over 18 East um, used to design for Ralph yeah. Lauren. I was telling me about those rig rooms. Um, yeah. And and I, I I mean, I assume those things are top secret, but it'd be awesome to see one of those ones. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. And you may be, you, it may be possible. <laughs> yeah. One of yeah, my favorite things. I tweeted things... once. Uh, oh, no, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, no, yeah, I'll follow it up with that. But <laughs> I tweeted once that um, Ralph Lauren has like an archive collection. And I thought 
the archive was, they have an archive library. They have a library full of vintage garments. Um, and I thought the archive library is like off limits. I think it used to be located in New Jersey. I heard it's been recently moved to New York City. Um, I thought it was like a total secret, top secret, like you can't go in there kind of thing. But apparently designers can like check out garments like like a library would. Um, wow. From, from that library. Um, and I've, I've always thought of like, trying to see if I can write a story for somebody and then just get an excuse to tour that library because I just assume it'd be amazing. Oh, that would be incredible. If, if anyone can do it, yeah. I think that your your work cut out for you, really. Yeah, and and I was going to say, uh, one of my favorite moments of selling vintage clothing was selling something to, I'm going to butcher his last name, but uh, John Moredge. Uh, the, oh yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I, I sold a Vietnam uh, ERDL jungle set to him a, a few years ago, and like when I saw it came through, uh, it was on eBay, of course. And when I saw it come through, I was just like geeking the fuck out. I think I called like four different people and was like, <laughs> "Guess who just bought something for me?" So, <laughs> John Moredge, if you somehow find this fucking <laughs> dumb podcast that we have, come on, please. I, I would love to talk to you and and geek the fuck out that's one of the great things when when you when i stumble upon like like vintage sellers so many of them have stories of like coming across someone who works for ralph ford and these people oh, are totally. going around the world collecting items and something in that design element will then make its way into a collection. absolutely um, i think it was i think it was antonio over 18 east who had who had told me that when he was designing there i think it was at his time at ralph lauren he said that you know he was like sketching out this design and um you know he presented it to his, his supervisor or boss at the time um and the the guy said you just can't like you can't paste random elements from garments that you like and just create a new garment like it has to like make sense um and he showed him the, the idea of shaping a garment, changing in just very subtle ways, but still retaining the kind of cultural message of that garment. And that I think that's what's so powerful about Ralph Lauren is that the clothes still retain the cultural messages of classic Americana and all the things that these garments have gone through in terms of like cultural history and social history. And then he puts them together in a way that also tells the different stories of America from like the, the Southwest he has a Southwestern kind of like double RL collections. He has, uh, you know, kind of like Northeastern workwear collections, like the, the kind of almost stuff that you imagine like a, like a steel mill worker wearing. Um, and then he has like the preppy, you know, definitely the, the Northeastern preppy kind of looks. Um, and he combines all these things into a store and walking through a store is like walking through like Epcot Center for American history. You have all mm. of these different stories of of how America has created and shaped different identities. Um, and all of it just feels very movie-like. I think it was Ralph who, who said himself that he thinks of himself when he designs collections as like a movie director. Um, he doesn't think of these things as just as clothes, which to me, again, part of his success is understanding that clothing is ultimately about storytelling. I know that sounds incredibly corny, but... Um, but it's you know, true. No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, it's that good, is the, the whole point is good. Yeah. That, that is the whole point of this fucking podcast is like the stories behind the clothing that we all love. And yeah, you know, I, once you, you know, once because it's insignificant, right? The piece of clothing is insignificant for the most part. 
right? You have attached a lot of meaning to it. And that's what is, I mean, that's what I don't, that's what I care about anyway. Yeah. I mean, David Marks and I were chatting once and he put it really, really well. He said, um, the Oxford class button down at this point is basically a shirt that like everybody. So if you're not necessarily into clothing, your first association with like an Oxford cloth button down might be like middle management, or it might be just someone that you don't necessarily want to associate with. Like you don't, <laughs> you don't aspire, you don't aspire to be like that middle manager guy that works at your job or what. Um, but he said the, the most powerful thing, the reason why the Oxford cloth button down exists is because the overriding story if it's not overriding at the moment, it's easy to like stoke and just kind of like ignite again, is that it's still associated with guys like Miles Davis, um, you know, Paul Newman. And once you kind of link it to those things, the, the narrative becomes different. The Oxford cloth button down suddenly becomes cool, suddenly becomes something that you want to own and wear, even though essentially everybody wears it. And that's one of the great things about Ralph Lauren is that he understands the cultural markers that make something aspirational and give something a story and to say that these are like you know parts these are associated with this and this is associated with that and allows you to create create a wardrobe based on these stories but also you know make it your own it doesn't have to be cosplay <laughs> yeah i i mean i i think that's one of the most powerful things and, and also the, another remarkable thing is when um when you look at how they create their garments my best field jacket ever has been from polo ralph lauren and it's been better than the stuff that i bought from I know, I know people are giving me shit about this, but it's better, <laughs> better than the stuff that I bought from all of the Japanese brands from like Engineered Garments, Visvum, all of these companies. And part of it is because Ralph Lauren does this kind of like incredibly meticulous um, fabric. The, the fabrics are so unique. And then they do these details you don't often see in at other companies because th those companies are doing such small batch runs, right? So if you're only making, I don't know what the might be, let's say a thousand jackets, you may not be afford to do like these really tiny details because it's going to skyrocket your costs. For example, my Ralph Lauren Yosemite backpack, it's from their Yosemite collection a few years ago, maybe like uh, eight or nine years ago. Um, you know, they, 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 um, they chose these like metal rivets that they um, that they had patina, so they, they turn green. Um, the, Excellent. The straps are backed with uh, this kind of like really thick felt. Um, it basically feels like the original um, hiking backpacks that you would have taken with you in somewhere between like 1940s and 1960s. Really rugged, just like the coolest thing that you could have dug out of like a vintage shop. But you know, it's it's something that you can easily get without having to. And they're able to do that because the company is so good at sourcing material, getting the details right. They have this archive of you know, vintage garments to get through um, to find design inspiration. And they put the design elements together so that you look at it. And even if you don't know all of these stories of like mountain climbers, you've, you've just seen a film of something and it just strikes that memory. And you think, oh, yeah, that's like that is the kind of like heroic backpack. Um, right, right. Yeah. Because I, ass I assign a lot of data to stuff that is not necessarily there, you know? Like, I'm creating a narrative a lot of the time. Um, and I think you're right that, that that is a great strength of Ralph and the whole brand. Yeah, I mean, the amazing thing is that the amazing thing of Ralph is that they'll make you want all of the stuff, even though they make 
like really down market, you know, clothing items that are just awful. yeah, yeah. The, like the factory nobody, store polos. Yeah. yeah, like the the yeah, like the outlet store polos and the you know, like they, they have a lot of like just ugly things. But you know, like it doesn't affect purple label. Like they go all the way from outlet, you know, crappy outlet item to purple label. And the purple label thing is incredible. I mean, the the double RL shawl collar cardigan I have. In my opinion, there's just no, I've, I haven't seen anyone do anything anywhere close to the yards that they use for the WRL shawl collar cardigans. For the hand knit ones, the machine knit ones are, I think, still nice, but the hand knit ones to me are just amazing. And nobody gets close for whatever reason. Um, Ralph is just able to source the right yarns and textiles and they work at a scale and have that kind of control over the design process that they right. produce these. I mean, even, even the most, you know, budget ralph things that i've ever had like their basic oxford shirt um you know i i've owned i would own them for years on end and wear the crap out of them and they were still you know I, i've never literally never had a problem with any like quality of a ralph thing i'm sure that's not always the case but you know the, there's just a certain aspect to it that they they nail basically better than anyone else i can it's reliable if you see it at the thrift store you should buy it right <laughs> That's that's the amazing thing about Ralph is that if you go to a thrift store, there's going to be a ton of Ralph Lauren garment. And so much of it has, the look has remained the same over the decade. It's just the fit has somewhat changed. So the, the 90s Oxford is going to be baggier. The early 2000s Oxford is going to be slimmer. But the look is essentially the same. And if you find stuff that fits you, gets the silhouette that you want, it's something that you can wear for a really long time. And they're often pieces that you can easily mix with other lines. Like, you know, it's easily mix a Ralph Lauren chambray with engineered garments or, or capital or any right. of these other like Japanese work. Um, it allows you to kind of keep something for a long time and, and explore your taste and find whatever you happen to like, but still get Ralph Pete. Um, yeah. There's so yeah. many guys that I, I know that got into clothing. Like I, I just came to mind that Jason Jules, um, when I interviewed him years ago, told me that, mm-hmm. you know, he found his love for clothing because thrifting and he just really loved Ralph Lauren. And through thrifting Ralph Lauren, he discovered all these other things. Um, and yeah, that's like, I mean, what a great thing that you can still find, you know, like Ralph Lauren pieces inside a thrift shop are really cheap. I, I bought a Ralph Lauren, um, uh, in, in tailoring, you'd call it a guard's coat, but descriptively, it's a navy double-breasted um, overcoat uh, made with turn-back cuffs, um, pequot bells, and a half-belted half back. And sure. um yeah, that the classic. Cost me, yeah, that cost me, I think, 80 bucks at a thrift store. Um, no mo- no moth holes, um, completely intact. And, you know, it's it's just because there's a lot of Ralph Lauren out there. So Totally. You know, I mean, even even like early, very early RRL, um, the fits are a little weird, I, I will say. Yeah. But there's a plethora of it available for not very expensive compared to what. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you so, do you think that the low head community has had? I mean, personally, I think they've had some impact. But um, do you think they've had an actual impact on like what like what the Polo brand has decided to do over the years? Have did you did you watch the um, horsepower documentary? I have not. I, I keep meaning oh. to, but I I'm terrible at watching new things. I mean, you know, take it. I. There is a part of me that takes it with a grain of salt, but I'm just saying in the horsepower documentary, there is someone 
who worked as an executive, can't remember his position, but he was reasonably high up in the Ralph Lauren Corporation. And he said, again, I'm just, I'm just repeating what he said. He said that they used to look at the records of what got stolen to, um, to, as a metric to figure out what was cool on the street. Oh now, my God. There, there is Sounds part of me about that, right. When I heard that, I was like, I don't know. But, you know, I mean, that's... That's that diabolical type stuff. Yeah, well, mouth. also, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if this is common knowledge, but a lot of the coolest stuff that they did, like Snow Beach, like Stadium, etc., it fucking bombed at retail. Like, yeah. no one wanted yeah. it, uh, which is why so many pieces that you see secondhand from the original ship have that little gold dot on the tag because that dot represented what was going to the outlets. I mean, my friends were stealing from like TJ Maxx. Ross, yeah. Oh, totally. There, totally. There, were, there were warehouses where um, like somebody would have bought a bunch of like clearance items and they're planning to move, move the shipments. Right. And yeah, guys would just, the guys would raid those warehouses. They raided, um, you know, they weren't, Sometimes they would raid a, a, a Ralph Lauren store, but a lot of times it was like department stores. Right. Um, and the department stores were not like caring. I mean, that's that to me is like kind of the crazy thing is that when people were boosting the stuff, everyone I knew, they were into blue line polo, even though like they were not thinking of like the super high end suits or purple label stuff. They right. knew they knew exactly what they wanted. And um, yeah, those those were pieces that created a certain look on the street. Um, yeah. A lot of that stuff was not, was not the hot selling items at the time. I, they were just, they were just the stuff that kids want on the street. That's it. Right. Um, right. Yeah. According to that executive, I mean, when I heard it, I, I was sort of thinking like that kind of like the look of what people were boosting, like the, the really large prints still, you know, the majority of polo is not that. Right. Um, so I, I wasn't sure if it was true, but that's that comes from if some if people look up that documentary it was um, it was done by Complex, um, really fun documentary, and uh, yeah, one of the execs says that in the. I'll have to check it out, and I've also also long thought that like when they started reproving these pieces, that's not a very Ralph thing to do. Like they make similar shit at most seasons, but it you know, a snow peach jacket is very iconic, and so like I kind of think that the the that subculture had you know and the just the i guess the the story behind it and the history of it at this point like had something to do with that decision i think it, it that when they were doing the, that repro in the palace that was just a year or two after they closed a bunch of stores and there's all this stuff right about whether or not ralph lauren was on the decline um i haven't looked at their their financial numbers or uh or public like you could look them up but oh I really them. i don't know if it had a really real impact um on the company sales, but, uh, but I, I don't read those stories anymore. Although, you know, they still don't have a flagship in San Francisco, which to me, I mean, they closed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, They closed the Atlanta one, um, five or six years ago, which had been open, I think since the early eighties and hadn't had a double RL store in the back of it too. Um, and now there, that store has reopened in the mall and the double RL has reopened elsewhere. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I hope that they, you know, continue their dominance well, well into the future. Yeah. So do we want to talk about the politics aspect of this? I mean, I guess we have been for a while here. Um, we were talking about the Oxford shirt um, in particular as a kind of symbol. And so when 
the white supremacists were marching uh, Charlottesville, they were talking openly about the way that they were dressing, right? Like, if you remember, everyone was wearing, like, a polo yeah. and khakis, basically. Um, so it's a huge shift in the way that they look right like in the past white supremacists were kind of like biker gang looking they were kind of like punk uh but the proud boys are like frat dogs you know they're just like wearing polos and and khakis and i don't even know what kind of shoes they would be wearing <laughs> um well so we were wondering like we were wondering i guess what what you think that means <laughs> i guess what you think that shift means well, they're like they're basically two generations of those groups. When I, as as you know, when I was growing up, um, white nationalists and supremacists were, you know, they were like skinheads wearing yep. black bombers and skinny jeans and military boots. And the young generation, I think, of these groups, um, many of them have a kind of side interest in clothing. I, I would, I've never, except for no, I mean, it, I mean, it's kind of all complicated i know this is gonna be controversial but you know depends on how you code uh -oh. like michael anton but michael anton's the only guy i know that would be described that could be described as uh a, let's say at least trumpian um who has a real interest in clothing and i guess roger stone um, well you know, like, so roger stone is an interesting character isn't he yeah <laughs> he follows yeah. me on twitter it's just crazy oh hey, my what? god that's yeah. fucking insane so crazy. Dude, because you know he's so vain, he wants you to talk about his clothing. Yeah, yeah. He wants you to rag on him, dude. You know he wants you to rag on him. I thought that was so crazy. I saw I saw him follow me, and then I I sent a screenshot of that to a buddy of mine. Sometimes oh I'll come across God. someone who's like who's like doing not like I mean Roger Stone's just almost. I mean I guess he's somewhat important because he had Trump's ear. Sometimes I'll come across someone that's like doing genuinely important work like they're like a leading scientist in climate change and i'll see them follow me and they have like under a thousand followers so it's not like one of those accounts with like a hundred thousand you know they're not like following a hundred thousand accounts uh, i think that's so crazy like sir you are doing like serious work what are you pants like please like pay it's... attention to your work there are people that are going to die and <laughs> There's something fucking wrong with you. Like, like, please, like, get back to whatever you're doing. Um, oh, but this, anyway, this is that is the antithesis of you having somehow the attention of both Roger Stone and Jordan Peterson because yeah. you make fucking stupid clothing jokes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're I, not I, stupid though. It's like the the point is that they say so much, right? I mean, am I explaining the joke? I have no idea why I I have no I have no idea why certain people follow me. I genuinely cuz many of them I don't think I don't think they're like clothing nerds. So I don't I don't I have no idea. I'm thankful that, you know, some people find my Twitter account right. interesting, but it's it's bizarre. But anyway, so the younger generation, I think many of them have a side interest in clothing, but except for a few notable figures i've never outside of those figures i most of them are just not clothing guys like they're not they're not like thinking about the difference between um a 1960s brooks brothers oxford versus the 1940s brooks um so um i think they have a side interest in clothing in that they pine for they romanticize and pine for this kind of like certain age of america where they feel that there was more 
let's say, order or um, where things did not become so quote unquote woke and um, clothing plays so scary for white people. (laughs) Clothing plays a part of that because um, in the way that we discuss clothing in this, in this podcast, these clothes now, even though they were not always seen so, but now they have taken on connotations of respectability. And if you dress like the neo-Nazis that I knew when I was growing up, um, though that's not a very respectable look. Whereas if you wear a polo and chinos, that is a respectable look. And these people both, I think, as Richard Spencer had noted in many times in different articles, said that uh, this movement needs to clean up its image in order to um, red pill the normie, as he put it. Um, mm-hmm. But also, I think it's not just a strategic kind of like, let's red pill the normie. I think these people wear these clothes genuinely because they think this like a respectable look, even though they're not they're not clothing guys. So, you know, um, well, we've seen that. Right. We know yeah. that. <laughs> so <laughs> close, the clothes. The look is never quite right, right? Like the cut's never quite it's right. It's always something. It's, oh, it's God. Yeah. 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 The detail's off. Because they're not, they're just not, they're not clothing guys. So, um, so that's the kind of the odd thing. And, and this, this, this coding of respectability, I think, really came out in the post-war era um, where the man in the gray flannel suit and then all of its mm-hmm. kind of um, satellite kind of looks, including anything that was sold at Brooks Brothers and J Press which were admittedly dressing the establishment. I mean, that's it's not like this narrative was made up. Brooks oh. Brothers dress um, the elites in coastal cities, usually uh, people who went to elite schools. And of course, J Press and the Andover shop were uh, satellite clothiers to Ivy League college. And um, many people after the Second World War, like if you look at um, street photography from that era, You'll notice it's actually not true that everyone was wearing tailored clothing in like 1950s. A lot of people were not wearing tailored clothing. There were more people wearing tailored yeah. clothing back then on the street than now. But a lot of people back then, young people were in bomber jackets and workwear. Um, you know, people were in, in biker gear. There was actually a lot of diversity in, in clothing yeah. styles. A lot of surplus um, also. And, yeah, a lot of mm-hmm. surplus. And a lot of those people did not want to look like the establishment. Um, so this look really in terms of the Brooks Brothers um, dominance of the look um, in American culture was really pre-war. And, uh, and, and as I've said many times on, on my site and Twitter, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, the suit was not even considered respectable. It was considered something that lowly clerks were and the respectable garment was the frock coat. Um, but hmm. by the post-war period, the suit became this symbol of respectability. And now, you know, even if you're a white nationalist and you have this view of clothing, you're probably not going to wear a suit because um, it's expensive. And, you know, you probably realize that getting the good stuff takes a lot of money and, you know, it's, it might require dry cleaning and all stuff. So you stick to the down market kind of like version, which is just a polo shirt and chinos, which, you know, reasonably affordable um, and still allows you to cling on to some vague notion of respectability. Can you imagine if they were wearing suits? <laughs> yeah. it, it's so fucking yeah. funny to me that like, the man in the gray flannel suit that that like you know mid-century uh i guess uh what's the word i'm looking for here that that like rose tinted lenses view of that period uh and fast forward to ralph like all of this shit was made by jewish people which these assholes hate yeah and it's i don't know it's just such a such an interesting interesting chain of events and and maybe only could happen now where I'm, I'm not unconvinced we're living in the simulation uh, 
yeah, just, you know, we were talking in the run up to this about like, I had the thought that it's, it's interesting that Ralph, uh, a Jewish kid from the Bronx carried the torch of Americana because it was founded by Jewish people in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, Ivy style as has been said many times before was shaped by, uh, Jewish clothiers, shaped by the hands of Jewish clothiers and given meaning spread westward uh, by black jazz musicians who took right. uh, a look that was mainly the east, uh, northeast and brought it all the way to California. When I talked to Paul Winston, whose father um, ran Winston Clothiers, they were the bespoke tailor, um, JFK. Um, he used to do trunk shows at West and people were ordering Brooks Brothers styles, um, you know, in like places like Arizona simply because they associated it with Brooks Brothers. Um, right. But that was, you know, that kind of Brooksy look um, was spread westward largely by Black Jazz music, um, who made something culturally cool for somebody as far out as California. Totally. Um, so you, this story is the same as with Ralph Lauren. This story, when you when you dig deeper into it, is this involves many different types of people, cultures, economic classes. Um, it's a much more rich and diverse story um, I, I, I will grant that, you know, I don't think all of the alt-right is white supremacists. I think it's like a hodgepodge of different beliefs. Total, uh, total. But certainly there are there are people in there who I don't think fully appreciate that they are, I think they only think of it as a waspy look when it's actually much more than that. Yeah, it's kind of like Paul Ryan saying that he used to love Rage Against the Machine. Like, it's the same the same yeah. kind of thought process yeah, it's, behind it's, it. It's a total right. mist. Yeah, yeah. Like I, uh, I do not understand this thing at all, uh, and I. But I love it. But I, yeah, but I love it, and I love to act like I understand it. <laughs> right. Um, so a little bit ago, you retweeted a picture of Matt Walsh um, wearing skinny jeans on a fishing trip. He says, uh, and then you added that it reminded you of all of the times in the early two thousands when you wore clothes that were way too tight. And your normal healthy guy friends invited you to do guy <laughs> stuff, and you didn't know how, uh, which is resonant for me. Loafers on the beach, tie in the mosh pit, you know. So, what do you think drives people into clothing that is uncomfortable? I mean, you do it to get a fit off. To, to yeah, to, to look cool for a bunch of dorks on the internet, man. To look cool yeah. for a bunch of dorks on the net because you're. Yeah, I mean. What do you, what can you say? I mean, it's because, you know, you learned all these like ideas online or you want to impress online friends. And um, yeah, you wear a lot of uncomfortable clothing. I mean, I know a guy that wears a suit to like barbecues. I mean, when I was um, a, a buddy <laughs> of mine is, is, is like a real sportsman. He's I mean, he, he's like he goes out and like fishing and boating and he's a genuine sportsman. So he he's the guy that um, I was thinking of when I wrote that tweet. Yeah. He used to and still invites me to things. Um, I dress better for such occasions now. But yeah, in, in the early 2000s, I didn't wear jeans as tight as Matt Walsh, but I wore slim jeans. Um, mm. And just because, you know, like you were not supposed to wear baggy jeans, like you were just supposed to wear slim jeans. So I wore slim jeans. But if you're out doing like actual activities, like you can't wear slim jeans because it's constricting, right? right? right. Like it's, it doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah, but you do it because that's what you're supposed to wear. I, I know for yeah, me personally, in the just... in the very early 2000s, like in the hardcore and punk scene, you know, nobody made slim jeans for dudes for the most part. So like we all resulted to like Gap girl jeans. Those were like the hot ticket yeah. item. 
And, yeah. you know, but I, I mean, I guess you can still get in the mosh pit with those. But yeah, do, doing anything else uh, vaguely normal and uh, athletic of or, or active, basically impossible. That's what's crazy to me about Matt Walsh's jeans is that they are essentially, <laughs> if you look at if you look at the cut, they're essentially the same as Levi's ex-girlfriend jeans, which were right. released in 2011. And right. the, the Levi's ex-girlfriend jean, as I'm sure any anyone who lived in the early 2000s and was into clothing at the time remembers, mm-hmm. it's because guys who could not find jeans slim enough to their liking would wear women's jeans. Yep. So right, they would right. buy from the women's aisle. Um, and in the even in 2011, when Levi's released the ex-girlfriend cut, it was roundly... Um, like sneered at online people like the product description you know said these are like your your ex-girlfriend's favorite jeans and like it's the slimmest you can possibly get and even liberal institutions like the new york times wrote really snide comments of like like can you imagine dating a guy wearing uh not only right. your jeans but your ex-girlfriend's jeans, uh or his ex-girlfriend's mm-hmm. jeans. Um, <laughs> and now that cut has become so normalized that matt walsh wears that and there's like no it's weird to me sometimes when I post those things and people push back on it because I'm thinking like, twenty. I don't think twenty years ago was that long ago. Like you right. must like anyone who's replying to me, unless you are twenty years old, like you must have remembered that period. Um, it's just it's crazy to me how normalized um, slim jeans are and stretch jeans because I'm pretty sure that Matt Walsh's jeans are stretched. And oh, that certainly. would have been unthinkable ten years ago. Uh, I, I don't think he could get his legs way. into them if they weren't stretched. Yeah. Well, and I think Wayne, didn't Wayne have a tremendous amount to do with that? Wayne? Yeah. Who's Wayne? Yeah. Lil Wayne wearing oh, little skinny Wayne. jeans. Yeah. 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 You might be right. Yeah. 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 Because I think it was like, it was like not, not at all. Uh, I don't know. It was like not a thing at all. And then he was doing it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, in the when in the early two thousands, I don't think. I mean, you, everyone just wore really baggy jeans, and then all of a sudden, a few rappers wore skinny jeans, and it was considered, um, let's say, let's say, non gender conform. It was right. like, yeah, it was right, something right. that men would do, um, and now that's just like the conversation is just so weird because when I tweet about it, people will say, well, that's how jeans are supposed to fit in this kind of correct way. And I just think you might think it's correct in terms of some weird abstract, you know, tailoring sense. But in the early 2000s, that was considered non-gender for men. Yeah, uh, totally. And, and now you masculine thing to do. Yeah. Now you go to Target and you can get jeans just as tight as the ones that that asshole is wearing. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the or Target Walmart, jeans are, are yeah, the like Target skinny jeans are made from cotton and spandex and, and polyester. It's a yeah, it's a cotton yeah. spandex poly blend, and they're super. Like tight. I mean, you know, it's it's such a it's such an interesting flip because like you know you've written about like how queer style has influenced like the mainstream in this kind of context, and like you know I I would say that like queer weirdo whatever like underground kind of shit all fit is kind of all lumped together, but like the mainstream is now the tightest fucking pants on the planet or the tightest jacket that you can get. And then the weirdos are now like they're embracing like the, you know, a Vietnam fatigue pant or a pair of like carpenter jeans, you know, just like, it's such a, such a funny thing that like this has taken 20 years for this flip to happen. Yeah. I mean, they're wearing the stuff that you'd associate with like, 
the Midwestern kind of, you know, farm worker, mechanic worker in early right. 2000s, like you, the, the least fashionable guy in early 2000s. That's, that's like the coolest thing you can wear. Yeah. The trucker for- hats. I mean, I have, I have two, two capital trucker hats. Um, but you know, like you could, you could wear a normal trucker hat and that, that was, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's like a, right. that's like a, that's kind of, I mean, forgive me for using the term, but it was considered like a redneck style in mm-hmm. the early 2000s. And now it's just considered like a cool thing. Oh um, yeah, for sure. Uh, some friends and I were talking recently about how um, I don't remember where the source came from, but it was like, it was some, you know, some fashion oriented uh, article or whatever, but basically how, um, you know, the, the early 2000s quote unquote metrosexual thing is, is very much like the straight side of men at this point. And, yeah. and uh, it was talking about how like real tree and like tree bark camo and shit have been dubbed by like the gay community the quote-unquote gay camo and so they're yeah. they're dressing in the like lumberjacky kind of way uh yeah. and wearing like these these you know hunter redneck whatever the fuck camos i don't know it was just so funny to hear it described that way yeah i mean that it's happened great. in the early uh in the 1970s I, I wrote about that for put this on of of uh the castroids which were gay men in the castro district san francisco um, appropriated these symbols of traditional masculinity, um, but they wore them in these like skin tight ways to essentially, you know, it, it was to make it to be about their own identity. Um, and, but as soon as that kind of look got popularized through like Magnum PI, these kind of like tight fitting hibiscus shirts, these tight fitting mm-hmm. jeans, um, you know, gay men moved on because the, the meaning of the clothes changed. It was no longer a way to signal something about your identity. It just became the straight look. Um, and I think that's happening again. Uh, it's just when something gets popularized and the signal is no longer signaling you want, then people move on. That's that's a dynamic that um, uh, George Simmel wrote in the 1904 essay on fashion, the German sociologist. He, at the time, mm-hmm. um, fashion was um, a little bit more trickle down. So people dressed like the rich. And he, he was noting that you know, kind of as people adopt the styles of the rich, the rich then move on because they don't want to look like, you know, the common. <laughs> right. <laughs> but now uh, fashion is no longer just about trying to look like the rich. You might want to look like a rock star or an artist or, uh, you know, there are all sorts of different kind of cultural groups. And that's what David Marx does so well. And David Marx is not the only per- first person to say, say it, um, but he distills these ideas really well in his new book, um, it's either culture and status or status and culture. I always get that. But um, he distills it really well in that um, we now use clothing to, to identify as different groups. But as as the, as the style becomes popularized, if it's adopted by a group that you do not see yourself part of, then you move on to something else um, because the, the signal has. Um, and it's the same with slang, right? Like uh, you can think of it. I always think of clothing as as the same as language. So you can think of I'm trying to think of like 90s slang. Um, tubular tubular and you know um i shall say rad right but it's ironic it's ironic it's just i talk like a fucking skater surfer kid from the 90s for some fucking Uh reason so so nobody you know like like young kids are not going to talk like that because that's not you're you're going to identify yourself as like i don't know like a gen x millennial or whatever um and yeah, that's. I mean, that's how slang changes over time. I have right. seen uh, David Marks had used one of my tweets in his book, and I'm trying to remember. I think it was. Um, I think he had quoted the time I retweeted 
Donald Trump Jr. And Donald Trump Jr. had said something like, um, I don't know, he used some slang word. I, I, I know he didn't use the word Johns, but he used something similar to that. <laughs> and I retweeted, I said, RIP to the word John. Same with slang. Like if, imagine if Donald Trump Jr. like just constantly used the word Johns, like I would just stop using the word Johns. Yeah, you know? yeah. So it's, you it's, would think. It's, it's the same with uh, all of these other kind of cultural groups. And it's not, you know, I'm not just saying it as my kind of snobbiness. I'm sure I sit, you know, on the side of some of some group that, you know, someone else doesn't want to be associated. And if I did something. So, yeah, I think that's happening with the kind of like super slim fit styles. And, and then, as you noted, like I see a bunch of people wearing like woodland camo that are clearly like, you know, like they're not like, going hunting. Yeah, they're not going hunting. They they are like a probably like an urban progressive, maybe even like a Bernie voter, like just. Yeah, but they're, they're wearing something that in the early 2000s, if I saw that person, I would have thought they were a Bush voter. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I've got one more for you and then we can then we can be done. Uh, I have always wondered why Ralph's Oxford's have have no breast pocket. Right. I know exactly. some of them do, some but I think do. the preference is none. Uh, is it an informality thing? Uh uh, if, if, you want to, issue. if you want to get into like really like anal kind of like you know kind of nerdy clothing detail brooks brothers originally made their oxford button downs without a breast pocket and they added a breast pocket in the 1960s if you are of a certain age and you grew up authentically wearing oxford button downs as part of like your school uniform there are some guys that i know that are like real old trads who think that an Oxford cloth button down shouldn't have a shirt pocket because they grew up wearing the ones without a shirt pocket. <laughs> for me, I think the Oxford cloth button down should have a shirt pocket because in my head, even though I wasn't around at the time, in my head, the the iconic like Ivy look for me is like the 1960s. And that's mm-hmm. when they that's when Brooks put on a shirt pocket. Why Ralph Lauren puts it on some shirts and not others, I have no idea. I don't know what like goes through their design decision. But if you're like a super clothing nerd, to me, that's how you distinguish the difference is whether or not you think the iconic, you know, I was talking to Michael Bastian, who's now the uh, creative director for men's at uh, Brooks Brothers. I th- mm-hmm. Maybe he also does women's, definitely does men's. Um, and we were talking about what the new Brooks Brothers Oxford button down should look like. And he put it really oh, well that he said, he said that it really, he said there are everyone has an opinion on what is the iconic Brooks Oxford. And it's true that just like Levi's 501s, Levi's 501s has changed over the years. And what you consider to be the iconic Levi's 501s, is it the 1947 version? Is it the 1980s version? Is it, you know, even pre-war? Like, what do you think, what do you think of when you, not Levi's 501s? For me, I think of the 1947 version. I know Brian at Wooden Sleepers, he loves the 90s version. And to me, the the Oxford cloth button down, given that in my view, it's, it's a Brooks design. Um, so it's really about what version of the Brooks design you think is the most iconic is it pre-war. Is it 1960s? Is it the 1980s? Some, I, I don't know anyone who does, but some people might think of the Mark and Spencer, like late nineties version when they start putting lining in the collar. Um, no, absolutely not. I see. And, yeah. yeah you know, it's just, absolutely. People, have, people have very strong, people have very strong views about these things. It just depends on, on what you think is the most iconic, what you, what resonates with you, what you grew up with or what you, 
what's embedded in your mind is like the golden age version of you. I like to be able to put my phone in my breast pocket. Yeah, to I, me, it's functional. You know what I mean? It's a pocket, which is good. Yeah. To me, it's I carry, functional. Yeah, I carry yeah. a pen every single day of my life. Uh, uh, Karen Dash, like the basic, you know, $25 one. I've had four or five over the years, but, but a pocket is crucial. You have to have a pocket. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I need a place to put my fucking pen. Like, yeah, no, it, to me, to me, even if I'm wearing a coat, sometimes I use my shirt pocket. So oh, totally, totally. Yeah. I, yeah. I, to me, it's because you can feel the vibration. Yeah. I, um, I don't really understand why people who like pocketless, but I will tell you there are people who I think have really great taste. Um, and that's their preference. That's yeah. they have their own view. They think, they think the pocket is wrong. So it depends <laughs> on what you grew up with, I guess. All right. So final palate cleanser question. What is your ideal Brooks Brothers Oxford? Mm. Uh, you don't have to get too me, nerdy with it, but yeah. I mean, for me, it's barrel cuffs, single button uh, on the, on the cuff. Um, and it's a slightly shorter cuff because the original, I, I can't, I can get very nerdy with it. So the original, <laughs> the ones that I think are the ideal um, uh, Brooks Brothers. So I, I now have my, my shirts made by a company called Ascot Chang in Hong Kong. And mm -hmm. so for me, I took all of the design elements from the 1960s, which is unlined collar, um, full roll. And um, the cuff is, the shirt cuff is a little bit smaller than normal dress shirt. And it's this barrel cuff, one button, uh, chest pocket, um, box oh, pleat yeah. at the back, no darts. I'm sorry, but I, I, I don't know why people put back darts on Oxford. Started, right started shirts I'm, suck. I'm yeah. I'm sorry. I that I I will I would I've never judged someone on on their clothing choices, but to me, Oxford is no darts. Um, no, no. I I think it looks good when it's like blouse at the back. I don't know why guys want it to just like suck in their back. It looks good blouse. So um, no no darts and um, yeah. I mean obviously oh and 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 a and a placket. Um, not a French placket, but a, a separate yeah. piece of cloth for the placket. Mm -hmm. Gotta have the placket. Um, yeah. That's How many buttons? The, the quintessential. Uh, I have to count. I can't remember if I did six or seven. I, I haven't ordered one in a while. Um, and I can't remember if the 1960s version was six or seven. So I can't remember on that detail. Okay. But at some point, right. they, they changed it. I remember that. Yeah. I, I think the original said six. And then the uh, I think they changed it to seven in the early 80s. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I preferred the seven because it, yeah, six, like, I don't know, sometimes if you're wearing it, uh, if you're wearing it untucked, like on a, on a shirt, I don't know, it can just give you this weird, like, kind of skirted feeling because there's not enough, enough buttons to hold it. Yeah. Anyway. Carl over at Sego, uh, he's a custom shirt maker over in New York City. He recently got um, a stash of fabrics that are supposedly made just like the original like 1960s Brooks Oxford fabrics. But it's hard to tell Ooh. because when people say this kind of when people say this kind of stuff, you know, they're basing it off a vintage shirt that you don't know how the how it's been worn or washed right. and you don't right. know what the real original. Um, but it's, a, it's supposed to be made just like the Dan River fabrics. Um, and that uses um, I believe it uses Supima cotton. Um, it's not made I don't believe it's made by Dan River. It's made by I believe a Japanese company that specced it just like the original Dan River fabrics. And then um, now, uh, now Carl, uh, and he, his shop is called Sego, S-E-G-O. Um, mm -hmm. Now he has a ton of the fabric and shirts from it. It looked really good. If, if people look up 
Seago Shirt Makers New York City Instagram, they can look at the photo on Carl's. I think he's a shirt maker. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Well, Lots of Derek, nations. Out yeah, of yeah. That, so. at, shout out Ascot Chang. Their shirts are fantastic. Uh, do you use them? Uh, I do not, but I have I've thrifted a couple of t- for friends over the years, and like the quality is insane. Uh, they're yeah, 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 I like them. They're yeah, consistent. and the and the prices, yeah, they're consistent. The price is good. Um, it's a price is you good. Know, it's a super high quality yeah. uh, make, and yeah. yeah. Well, Derek. Dude, thank you for joining us. Um, we usually give the guests a chance to shout out whatever they want to. So here's your shot. Uh, wish I had something to sh- shout out to my mom and to <laughs> oh, yeah. who's, uh, who's listening to this. You could check out my work at um, my mom and dad. Shout out to, I don't want to forget dad. Shout out to my mom and dad. And who anyone's listening to this, you can check out my writing at um, Put This On and I Work Where. I also do freelance writing, which I um, post links to on my Twitter. Um, the Twitter is under the name Die Work, where no spaces or underscores or anything. It's just Die Work. Yeah. And if you don't follow Derek on Twitter, uh, you should because it's a treat and a half, both the post and the insane replies. Yeah. I think my mom follows you now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a, a friend, my best friend's husband is like uh, also just also a great friend, but. Uh, I was talking to her about doing the interview and she was like, Oh, I think Jeremiah follows him. I was like, Oh, that's, that's hilarious. <laughs> Just ran, random people that I know follow you, man. Um, it's very but, yeah. Uh, anyway, everyone, thanks for listening. Um, if you have questions, comments, concerns, uh, apocalypse duds at gmail.com at apocalypse duds on Instagram. Uh, I'm Matt Smith at rebels rogues. And I'm Connor Fowler at Connor Fowler. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening. And Bye. follow us on Spotify. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Follow us on Spotify. Please rate the show uh, or follow us on whatever whatever platform you use and rate the show. Uh, and yeah, so send us emails, like even dumb fuck memes. We don't care. Just <laughs> We've gotten like two emails, yeah. so that's going to continue to be a joke. Anyway. <laughs> Thanks for having me on.